following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Amen. All right, let's preach God's word. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 13 and 14, if you would. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. And as you open to Deuteronomy, uh, I'm reminded of words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, or verse 15, excuse me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets. Beware of people who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Raise your hand if you know a ravenous wolf. Okay, just me. I'll try it again. Anybody know a ravenous wolf? All right, now I want you to say that name as loud as you can. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bethany was talking to me this week, and she was talking about, um, she said it's really hard to find music for Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 14. And I said, you should have tried writing the message. Because... In these chapters, the Israelites, as we've been talking about in the past couple of weeks, who are wandering in the desert, about to go to the promised land, are warned that when they get to the promised land, there's going to be people who are going to essentially try to appease them to their gods. They're going to essentially look at them and they're going to say, well, you worship this God, but we worship this God, and let me show you what our God is really all about. And what happens and transpires is Moses commands the people and he says, if anyone does that, you should put them to death. So it's really serious stuff. So if you know a ravenous wolf, you look at them tomorrow or whenever you see them this week and say, hey, in the Old Testament, God would have let me kill you. (laughs) Don't say that. And then we wonder the connection between 13 and 14. Because in 14, the Israelites are commanded to give back to the Lord as he has been generous. But there is a connection piece between the two. The generosity of the people is specifically related to the fact that they are in allegiance to God. I pledge allegiance to the lamb that was slain who helps me overcome all these false prophets, false teachers, and false things of this world. It is a response of generosity from the people because of what God had done in their lives and how he's helped them be more than conquerors, to quote a New Testament passage in Christ. So we got to dig into this text and really look at, main idea, how does God help us when we're tempted to disobey and then also when he calls us and commands us to be generous? Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. The first five verses, Moses is going to give the Israelites Three ways that they can be tempted. Now, I'm going to give you all these, and then we're going to kind of pick them apart one by one. So don't go to the next slide. (laughs) Just keep that there. They can be tempted through false prophets. That's the first five verses. They can be uh, tempted by loved ones, and then they can be tempted by these things called revolutionaries. Now, pause for a second before we uh, move forward. You're going to see the word miracle pop up in the text every now and again. 
And as you see the word miracle, the first thing that we think about of a miracle is that it must be from God. And that's not necessarily true. Miracles are not a sole test of truth. A so-called miracle can happen in many religions because Satan uses false religions and prophets to deceive this world. So some things might look like a miracle, but they're not necessarily a miracle because they're not from God and they're not weighed by his truth, which is his word. So the true test of a miracle is validated by the word of God. So false prophets, and then you have loved ones, and you have revolutionaries, are all going to claim that there's miraculous things that happened, and it was because of God. But the people, by command from Moses, will say, that's not the true test of a miracle. The true test of a miracle is if God's word validates it. And so let's look at these three things, and we'll kind of break these down. First thing, false prophets. False prophets or dreamers of dreams you might have in verse 1 is another way to say a false prophet are common in the Old Testament. At times, false prophets had predictions that came true. Do you hear something thumping? I have no idea, but it's like, it's like in my foot. I think it's the, the littles underneath of us. They're jamming out. Let them, let them go, man. Let them, let them have. It's a miracle that they're. <laughs> I, I heard like little like voices here, and I'm like, it's not just you. It's me. It's in my feet. So, it's all right. Okay, back to it. All right, false prophets. Again, you might have dreamers of dreams, but at times, a false prophet's predictions came true. But the problem was they contradicted God's word. And they push people, look at verse 2. And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, let us serve them. People could fight false prophets by trusting God and his word rather than miraculous experiences. Church, we got to be cautious with this. There's some people out there who are false prophets that will say, truly this was an act of God that happened in my life because of what I experienced. But, but God isn't after experiences. He's after emotional intelligence that causes heart transformation. And so we have to be very careful that our mind doesn't get lost. When emotion takes over and logic ceases, we are often lost and not grounded on God's word. If a human experience, a quote-unquote miracle, contradicts God's teachings, then the Israelites were to reject it and return to the Lord. They were to ask for forgiveness and then come back in humble submission to him. Now, John chapter 17, verse 17 says, Make them, this is Jesus' words, holy, set apart, okay, by your, God's truth, and teach them your, God's word, which is truth. So the Israelites were to view each enticement of false teachers as a test of their love for the Lord. So church, this is how it breaks down for you, all right? Every time this week that you have an enticement from somebody who is not of God to follow the things that are not of God, it is a test for you to look at those things and say, my love for the Lord is either going to be loosened or it's going to be strengthened on my reaction to that. Well, there's always a danger to submit. They knew 
this is the Israelites, that every time they resisted, their faith and love for the Lord grew stronger. Church, you got to know that. Every time you resist temptation, your love for the Lord grows stronger. Now, this principle is repeated in James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it what? An opportunity for great, say it, joy. You should be excited about those things, right? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And so you should let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete and you'll lack nothing. That's, that's, that's encouraging words. So instead of, instead of praying, right, that temptation would pass you by, the prayer is that temptation would meet you full and that you would have an opportunity to resist that. Now look at verse 4 and 5. It says, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God, and you should fear him and keep his commandments to obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. There's a lot of hymns there, right? And what we're seeing here is that Israel and us was to love, follow, worship, obey, serve, and hold fast to the Lord. Now you should underline Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God. You shall fear him and keep his commandments. You should obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Now God is so serious about the death penalty for any false prophets who seduced his people into idolatry that he would bring them under judgment. And look at verse 5. This is important. Killing a false prophet was a way to purge the evil from your midst. Moses commands this nine times in Deuteronomy. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) How is church today? I don't know. Satan's in the pipes. He's just, you know, whatever. False prophets. Good grief. All right, so number one, false prophets. How does he help me? When false prophets come, people who are against the Lord, he helps me. Now, that's kind of like an Old Testament thing. And all of us would look at that and we'd say, okay, Jordan, I kind of understand that. Like, that makes sense. Like, I get that. But, but here's one that kind of lands closer to home. What about loved ones? What about people who you love and care about who push you to disobey the Lord? Now, if you have an unbelieving spouse, if you have unbelieving parents, If you have unbelieving grandparents, this is big. Some of you face this even today as you were getting ready to go to church this morning. Somebody ridiculed you as you walked out the door. Somebody wanted you to stay home. Some of us, it was just more the time change. (laughs) But the huge tragedy is when a loved one tempts another one to follow after idols. Moses gives examples. Look at this in verse 6. He says, it could be your brother. It could be the son of your mother. It could be your wife. It could be a close friend. And what's sad here is, unlike false prophets who are often up front in their attempts to seduce people, family and friends are a little bit more subtle and secret, aren't they? Are you you really going to go to church this morning? Are you really going to Read your Bible this morning. Some of us, it's not even church. It's more when we go to the daily disciplines. When you have that spot for devotions and your spouse looks at you and you say, again, you're praying to that God? 
Why would you do that? That's a, that's a big problem. For some of us, we have this big tendency in our life to want to just drop everything that's been given to us by God and go the other direction. Let me just give you some good words here. Idolatry is never to be tolerated, whether it's public or private. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. It says, if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Anyone who leads one of God's people astray is greatly offending the heart of God. And church, if that's you, if you have a loved one who's leading you astray, take heart. And know that they are not against you, they are against God, and our response is always to pray for their souls. That they would repent of their wrongs and turn to Christ. It should cause you to pray more for them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, it says, If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. Well, it's hard. If a family member or a friend abandons the Lord, we're never to follow them. Jesus always has to come first. He has to come first in everything. It has to be Christ above all. Who are you searching for? The applause of God or the applause of man? So here's these people who are going to come into your life and you're going to be tempted to disobey the Lord. False prophets, you got some of those loved ones, okay? And then revolutionaries. Now revolutionaries is in 12 through 18 and it refers to wicked men who have the ability to lead the whole town astray. These are like crooked politicians. These are people whose voices come in. This is, this is the guy who comes into town and he has the new church, Right? And these are the people who come into town and they have the new revivals and they have the new things and everything's, everything's kind of cool and hip in the way they package it, right? And you're thinking to yourself, man, this, this sounds good, but does it have any substance to it? A lot of things sound good, but have no substance. It says that these revolutionaries could deceive one of the cities, verse 12, of the Lord. So God gave these cities to Israel, and before any action could be taken, a report had to be confirmed through a thorough investigation. Now, that's kind of interesting, right? Wouldn't that be fun? You got like this new thing coming in, and we're like, well, we're going we're gonna to investigate these things and see if there's really any truth to it. This is uh, not saying that there wasn't any truth to it, but I'm sure a lot of you heard about the revivals that were happening at Asbury. And I talked to a professor of mine about those revivals, and I said, what do you think? He said, it's not how high you jump, it's how good you walk when you come down. So we'll see the test of whether it was true revival based off the substance of the saints that came out of it. So if the report was confirmed, go back to the text in verse 15, the sinful town was to be treated like a Canaanite city, meaning if somebody who was a revolutionary had come in and 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 converted the town to a sinful way, they completely demolished it, a complete destruction of people and livestock. It was never, look at verse 16, to be rebuilt. So what we see here is when Israel obeyed, the land would be morally clean and spiritual renewal would take place. God would have compassion and he would have mercy and we would see through obedience there was the right thing to be done. 
Let me say that again. When the land is morally clean, spiritual revival takes place. So sometimes that means we have to get rid of chapter 12, the things that we worship. Now let's hone in on verse 14. Notice the word abomination. That means a gross offense regarding idolatry. Daniel and the New Testament use this word in a phrase called the abomination of desolation. That's a huge word. It refers to the ultimate idolatry of the Antichrist who creates an idolatrous image of himself in God's most holy place. That's 2 Thessalonians. We're going to talk about 2 Thessalonians in the second half of this year. So just, we're going to like put a pin in that, all right? We'll revisit that in a little bit. But it's interesting how Deuteronomy and Thessalonians bookend here. An abominable thing is anything totally displeasing to God. It represents impure unclean things that are empty of holiness. Okay, so we've talked about some application here. We've talked about what this kind of looks like for us in New Testament, but let's, let's look at this. This chapter would beg to ask a very important question. I just want you to think about this this morning. Number one, what would it take to lead you away from the Lord? I mean, we look at these passages of Scripture and we think, man, Israel's strong and they're tough. And we look at these texts and we say, we say, surely they would not fall away. I've been in uh, First Kings in my personal devotions. Solomon is the wisest person ever and he follows false gods. If the great Solomon could be led astray, don't you think you and I run this risk? As we're walking through the text, we have to start thinking to ourselves, who are the false prophets speaking in my life, and what false prophets have I let come into my life? What are the voices that I've let speak into my life, whether that be social media, whether that be through television, whether that be through friends, whether that be through family members? Who am I listening to? I heard a person say the other day, this this specific person on a news source was their source of authority. And I thought, you need a new source of authority. They said, well, they're an expert on the subject. I said, God's an expert on the subject. So, second question, what signs and wonders would do it? What emotional experiences would do it? What if your spouse deserted the Lord? What if your friends all deserted the Lord? What if the culture or the nation called you away from Jesus? Those are just questions I've been asking this week. I'm like, what would it take to lead Jordan astray? We must never let such ties to this world come before our relationship with Christ. Like we sing the song, right? Though none go with me, still I will follow. That's, that's something to think about. Okay, so there's, there's a second part of it because then we got another chapter, right? Verse 17 says, The Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger to show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you. This is great. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin, right? So what do I do with this grace? Do I just put it in my heart and just like let it just store up? It's my grace. It's not your grace, right? If God helps me from being tempted from false teachers and loved ones and revolutionaries, what do I do with this grace? Where do I put it at, right? Uh, it's kind of like the power strips out here on the highway. I'm curious, like how do they, how do they hold that power in there, right? What do, you, what do you do with it? 
And supposedly you sell it. I don't know how that works, but I'm sure it's, it, it makes sense to them. It says that you are to be generous with it. And here's how God helps us in being generous. Look at the first two verses in 14. Moses called the Israelites the sons of the Lord or children, meaning that they had a special privilege that they're the only nation on earth who had an intimate relationship with the living God. That's good. All other nations were to come to God through their ministry and testimony. We in the New Testament are called the priesthood of believers. We are a nation that God has entrusted to help reach other nations who are far from God. Do you know that? You as a church are called to reach the lost for the gospel of Jesus Christ and build up others who are doing the same thing. Israel, verse 2, as a people who were set apart holy to the Lord, generously demonstrated their holiness before other nations. In verse 2 it says, they were God's treasured possession. This is the same as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, right? It says, you're a holy people. You're set apart, a royal priesthood. So you share kind of in this a little bit. One way they did this was in the morning of the death of loved ones. So let's go into 14, and it says in verse 3, you shall not eat any abomination. And then he starts talking about the animals that you eat and all this other stuff. Now, the reason that the text unpacks that is because other nations had weird kind of views about death and dead spirits and all this other stuff. But the Israelites demonstrated times of mourning as great hope. Now just think about this, all right? In the Old Testament, especially as we see the Israelites ready to take the promised land, people are starting to die. It is amazing to me how many of us don't want to talk about death when it is so prevalent in our society. Like, everybody dies. People die all the time. It's what we do with death that helps us point people back to who created us in life and death. Christ our hope in life and death. And so the Israelites had this great hope. And their great hope caused them to be generous. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, we're reminded of the fact that God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And so as these people pointed people back to who God was, this nation, there was distinctions that were to be made. A distinction in death, number one, for sure. And then two, look at verse 3, all the way to 21. Here's all of those crazy complicated laws that lead you astray on your 365-day Bible reading plan, okay? You get to these things, and you're like, I don't understand it. Like, for example, these are the animals you may eat. Ox, sheep, goat, deer, gazelle, roebuck, whatever that is, wild goat, ibex, I think they live in the mountains, antelope, mountain sheep, every kind of parts of the hoof that has the hoof cloven in two, choose the cud among the animals you may eat, yet of those that chew the cud or have coat, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth, Right? Like, so we look at that and we're like, skip, moving along. Like, is there anything else, right? Well, watch this. All of these are a foundation of the generosity of God and the discipline of his people. All the food laws in chapter 14, verse 3 through 21 have been debated for years of why they're in there. Let me give you four basic beliefs real quick. Number one. These certain animals were prohibited to eat for hygienic reasons. And all God's people said, amen. Like, for example, you don't eat something that's foaming at the mouth. 
It's not going to be good for you, right? Like, I killed this deer, but yeah, it's got rabies. Like, probably not a good thing to put on your barbecue, okay? So that's one view. Two, these animals were banned because they were used in pagan ceremonies. Well, that's a good thought. The only problem with that is it lacks context. We really don't have that in the rest of the text. And maybe God's saying, hey, don't use this because Phil down the road uses this, right? Uh, In regards to offering sacrifice to his God. Three, these animals were symbolic of good and evil in human realm. I don't know who created that, but I think that's kind of cool. I think that makes sense. Like, for example, Ibex, good. Uh, Bats, bad. That just makes sense, right? Like, okay. And some of you who hate snakes, you're in that boat. You're like, yeah, I like that. Like, that makes sense, right? So those of you who are in 4-H, like, maybe you need to start rethinking some of the animals in your pens. All right, anyway. Four. God made an arbitrary or what seems to be random to us, but not random to him, distinction between clean and unclean animals. I like that. And I'll show you why. Because God is using something ordinary like food to show his generosity and Israel's need to discipline themselves. Could you make it a little bit more clear, Pastor Jordan? I totally can. God said don't do it, so don't do it. That's why this is there. He's looking at Israel and he's wondering, will you obey? Because other nations are going to look at you and they're going to say, will they obey the words that God has given us? Other nations will do what they want, eat what they want, when they want, how they want, with who they want, but not you. There's something to be said about the biblical text when it says you do not eat with a sinner. There's there's something about food. There's something about meals that happens all throughout the biblical text. And when you share meals together with people, like we're kind of showing something here. This is why Jesus ate with sinners. Like something's happening and transpiring in there, right? No Israelite could eat anything without realizing that every area of their life, even their diet, was to be distinct because of God's generosity. Could the same be said about us? Here's how I make like a bridge like from Old Testament to New Testament. I constantly wonder this. Like, Would people look at your life and say, even to the food that you eat, you're concerned about if God is honored and glorified? Now, sometimes I think that's like eating a really good steak, okay? And sometimes I think that is, hey, you shouldn't eat a whole box of Oreos, all right? So I think all of these things are here for disciplinary purposes to point back to God's generosity and goodness, It lays the foundation for how God helps Israel and us be generous to him and to others. So the first distinction in what was eaten, and then the second distinction is what was given. This is 22 through 23. Watch this. God gave regulations, not just on food, but also on what you do with your gift. So he talks about tithing. Tithing means tenth. And the people were to take their first fruits. We're going to talk about this later in Deuteronomy what they had from crops and livestock, and they were to contribute a tenth of that. This is where their food came from, first of all. But number two, look at verse 23. It says, it helps them learn to fear the Lord always. Everything in your life, whether it's your diet, your friends, your family, your job, your marriage, even the things that you give are all a distinction to help you learn to fear the Lord always. 
Verse 23 in the Living Bible paraphrases like this. It says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. Now pause. Since the tithe was to be brought to one place, Moses gave essentially long distance tithing. I like this. This is like, this is like putting your tithing in uh, electronically. So if you go to like communitygospelchurch.com and you click the giving section, you can put in your credit card number and you can put a lot of zeros on that. And like, it's great, right? Like, it's, it's awesome. You're a long distance giver. I can't make it to church this week, but hey, you can have my money, right? That's fun. That's, that's good. Got hot in here real fast, okay? So we got clunks going on underneath me, and the heat is on. <clears throat> but God doesn't place unrealistic demands on his people, but look at this. He makes a way for them to give conveniently. The, the, the emphasis here is not should you give, how much you should give. It's that you give, and you give it out of convenience because of the fact that God gave freely to you. So after three years, all the gifts are gathered for distribution. Levitical priests get some of that. Travelers get some of that. People who suffered get some of that. People would come and be blessed by Israel's generosity because of God's provision and their discipline. Church, People come and are blessed because of God's provision and their discipline. It has nothing to do with us. So we ask, since God's been good to us, how do we respond? Do we respond the same way? Like, do I want your cow? And just f- full transparency, like, please don't bring livestock to church. Okay? I guess it's not, we're living in a little bit different time period. All right? But I think this is interesting. Because the New Testament takes tithing to be both monetary gifts as well as spiritual gifts. And it ramps it up a little. It goes from a tenth to what is called a sacrificial gift. Something you do with all of a right heart. Anyone who is a New Testament believer gives this biblical way. And when they do, they find themselves blessed. Giving monetarily and spiritual gifting should be regular, it should be planned, and it should be proportional, and it should be private. It's not flashy. There are so many of you that serve this church in just a consistent way. Thank you. You do so with your gifts. You do so with your monetary gifts. You do it with your talents. You're not flashy. You're just, you're just consistent, and I think God loves a consistent, faithful giver. It's amazing to see it. And you're consistent in your life, too. It's freely given. It's cheerful. We're happy to give as God's been given to us. Now, some of you look at it and you go, I don't give. So you got to do some heart searching here. Because for some of us, a tenth, a 10% is a good place to start. For others, 10% is nowhere near enough. For others at the present time, 5% is a massive step of faith. And I'm not talking about just money. I'm talking about your time and your talents too. And this is how God's church operates. It's a heart issue, a worshipful response to God's generosity that helps us when we're tempted to disobey. Now, I love generosity, and I always ask myself, how does God help in, in, in us being generous? Here's how he helps us. You don't want to do this, Right? Like, none of us want to do this. None of us. We don't look at giving and we're like, yeah, absolutely. Take my money. Take my time. Take my talents. Yeah, it's great. Like, it, we just don't operate that way. 
It's in our sinful nature to just hoard our stuff. But the Lord helps us give because of what was given to us. That would be Christ on the cross. Giving is a spiritual issue, first for Israel, then it extends into the church that demonstrates our dependence upon God, a place he loves to help us. Look at Luke chapter 16, verse 11. It says, if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? A life distinct and set apart because of the gospel freely gives time, talents, and possessions. Now, here's the kicker of what God is telling Israel. He's looking at Israel and he's saying, Israel, the nations are watching you. Israel, the nations are watching you. We want the nations to repent of their sins and come to worship the living God. Well, how do we do that, Lord? You gotta be generous with your stuff. You gotta be generous with your time. You gotta be generous with your talents. You gotta be generous with all of your stuff. Why should we be generous, Lord? Because I've helped you overcome false prophets. I've helped you come family members who are pushing you to go against the word of God. I've helped you with even those people who come into town and claim they're the way, the truth, and the life, which they're really not because there's only one person who's the way, the truth, and the life. And so he looks at us and he says, he says, Israel, you are to be this way. And then it extends to the church and he says the same things to Israel as he does to the church. In Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 14, it reminds me of Psalm 139. There David celebrates God's intimate knowledge of who he is, his presence in his life, and David knew that God not only formed the intricacies of his internal and external features, but he also knew that God made him a living soul, a spiritual life, and the ability to be intimately, relationally close to God. You are a very special human being. Some of you more than others. And you're created in the image of God. Believers are even more special because God created us with a uniqueness and an ability to have an intimate relationship with him. And in that intimate relationship with him, we are able, as the New Testament says, to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And we're to be more than generous with our time and our talents and with our money and our possessions. So we live accordingly. And I think this is where the Holy Spirit does his work. This is where I think the pastor kind of puts the Bible down and he says, okay, church, now you got to do some soul searching. Like, where are you at? And the way that we do that is through prayer. Heavenly Father, as we looked at Deuteronomy 13 and 14, we asked a couple of questions. Number one is, what would it take for somebody to lead us astray? And I'm reminded of the disciples who said, Lord, we will follow you to death. Surely not us, Lord. We, we wouldn't abandon you, but at the foot of the cross, there's just a few individuals. And so we would ask through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you'd give us the ability to overcome those individuals that try to pull us astray from your truth, these false prophets, these people who have this flash-in-the-pan mentality. We pray that you would help us to overcome family members who are even leading us astray and people who are coming and prevalent in social media circles, these quote-unquote influencers, God, who the only thing they influence is evil, that we'd be able to see them for what they really truly are. God, we would ask that we cling to the cross of Christ and that we are more than conquerors and that you would help us overcome. And that as we overcome, Lord, 
open our eyes and our ears to the ways that we overcome so that our hands that have such a tight grip on the world start to loose. And God, I would pray for conviction of our hearts today in regards to our monetary gifts, what we give. Not just to your church, but what we give to others. People that we know in our life that have needs. I pray that you would help us to evaluate our, our time. Are we serving your church? Are we serving our church at the capacity that we could serve your church? Or are our priorities kind of messed up? I pray that you would reveal to us what you want us to do. A message is just a message. It's just head knowledge. But it has to trickle down into our heart. It has to be heart transformation. And so I pray that you would speak to all of us, including myself, who are gathered here today, to make movements to conform more to the image of Christ and our ability to overcome the attacks like the devil enlisted in the desert and also to the ways that we are to be a servant like Jesus was when he took the towel. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.